Welcome to the third uh, Breakfast with Jesus podcast. And if you recall, um, Anne and I are going on a trip through Jeremiah, which has been wonderful, and we want to share some of that with you. And this particular talk, um, I want to address the issue of the wrath of God and the love of God. How do they relate to each other? I can clearly remember when I gave uh, my talks a couple of years ago on cosmic redemption, an anguished evangelical Christian coming up to me afterwards and saying to me uh, with a pained look on his face, but what about the wrath of God? And in his mind, clearly, the wrath of God was co-equal with the love of God and, and, and in contrast to it. And, and how do we have to choose? And I have noticed uh, more and more of late that in the typical evangelical framings of the gospel, which, as I often critique, they're sin-based, they've also got a picture of God behind that, of where the primary picture of God is holy. And the, the, uh, the implication of that holiness is he's also an angry God. Now, we... I think nowhere in the Old Testament would we expect to find a angrier God than in Jeremiah. He's, he's um, infamous for his woes and lamentations. And we know that he prophesied during the uh, penultimate and ultimate days of the, of the Judah Empire and lived through the crash, lived through the sacking of Jerusalem in 586 BC. He's... Um, uh, He's a um, wearing his heart on his sleeve kind of writer. So this is going to be interesting. Surely here we would expect to find the angry God. So let's begin with a, just a couple of introductory points. I think the presupposition behind the angry God is, is punishment. And the goal of this punishment is retribution. Um, now that's important because retribution implies the, the, the model is there's a moral code that's been broken and there needs to be punishment for that breaking that moral code. Uh, in a sense, this moral code is the highest order and the judge is subservient to that moral code. Now, once we apply this model to God, we get what I call the headmaster view of God, omnipotent, uh, fearsome. He becomes very intimidating um, since his power is so great and his ability to punish is immense. And the punitive model of God, which I think um, many Christians and non-Christians labor under this, we all do actually, I believe, labor under this, a pagan, I'd call it the pagan view of God. And at face value, let's be honest, lots of scripture passages seem to support this particular view. Um, the question is, what about Jeremiah? His message is really pertinent because what Jeremiah does is he goes behind the judgments of God, and which in this particular case were judgments that were being um, activated through the Babylonians. And he gives us the, the mind of God, the, the, the inner being of the divine mind as to what is motivating him. Now, a word here about the language, because this is very important. As you know, my, one of my particular angles and my, my training is literature. 
And what we are looking at in Jeremiah, and particularly in these early chapters, I'm looking today at chapters two and three, it is, it is dramatic. The language is the language of drama. What that means is that we are getting, we're, we're not getting um, metaphysical abstractions. Uh, we are getting somebody who's in a situation. So what I do, in a, if I have a dramatic monologue or dialogue, the player is in the situation, not outside it. Whereas if I take, let me give you an example of another genre, which might be um, the, the genre of the imperative or the commandment. And in a modern organization, this would have uh, um, the appearance of policy manuals or regulations. Now, regulations or legislation expects compliance. That's the, that is the corollary, the reader's corollary of a regulation is compliance. We don't have that here. That's really important. As a matter of fact, um, I'm, I'm going to, I'll do another little talk on the language of the Old Testament. Um, and uh, I'll build on this um, through the um, magnificent work Mimesis by Eric Auerbach, one of the great uh, books on literary analysis uh, ever written. He was a Jewish writer and it's mesmerizing what he says. Anyway, that's for another time. What, what this language does is God is now a player in the system. And if, if I'm a player in the system, then I have a voice. The voice has got an emotional tone to it that gives layers of meaning underneath the words. Uh, it, it makes it much more subtle and it implies interaction. Even if the, 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 the dramatic monologue is just one voice speaking, it's implying the other side. You will see this a lot in John Donne's magnificent uh, sonnets. Um, so the, immediately we can see this does something quite extraordinary. This makes God vulnerable uh, because he's, he, he, the language immediately positions God as someone who has been scrutinized and then spurned. And verse 5 of uh, chapter 2 is extraordinary. I'll read it out. God speaking, thus says the Lord. You know, what's the Lord say? Does the Lord, you know, rain down thunderbolts? No. He says, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? This is the extraordinary language of weakness. It's the voice of someone who's not only been spurned, but someone who couldn't stop it happening, despite all their best efforts, and they're utterly confused by the rejection. I don't get it. And this emotion of confusion gives way to a special kind of hurt, ingratitude, the feelings of ingratitude. Now, this is really important because we can now, we can throughout this amplify this dramatis personae, not just with God and Israel, but God and all humanity. Ingratitude is the neglect of a gift that has been offered at some cost. And it's one of the most poignant and cutting forms of rejection. So the Lord, he's bewildered and he muses in verse seven, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. 
But when you came in, you defiled my lamb. Yeah, what did I do wrong? What, what could I have given you more? So what this does is it, extraordinarily, is modelling God, the, the, the dramatic voice is modelling God as a victim, not a potentate. So let's look at this issue of vulnerability. This raises big theological questions. So if we said God's vulnerable, um, how does this map with omnipotence? Because it looks like vulnerability equals weakness. A potentate is strong because their will is incontrovertible. It's like a, a steamroller can flatten out any obstacle by its superior power. The question is, is this the kind of power that God is interested in? You know, God, God, God as a steamroller. Now, the language of Jeremiah really helps us with this question. And it's going to amplify our understanding of God. It's going to require a paradigm shift of our understanding of God. The predominant analogy that Jeremiah chooses to characterize this situation is not a potentate who's angry, but a lover who has been betrayed. Uh, the imagery is sensual. It begins around about verse 20. Uh, verse 20 of Jeremiah 2 reads, um, Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Wow, that's tough stuff. This is, this is the, you've just sold yourself to everybody. And this image of whoredom by verse 24 becomes really bestial. Um, animals on heat. Verse 24 says that you, you, you were, look at your way. Know what you've done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Now, in this analogy, God is positioning himself, or Jeremiah is positioning God, as a lover or bridegroom or husband, and Israel is the wife, the betrothed, the beloved. But all the variations on the theme, and that, that this theme becomes dominant, at least for through chapters 2 and 3, but it continues beyond that. This is the... They are playing this same tune. God as the lover cannot command the affections of his beloved, but he deeply desires them. And this is an incredibly important statement. Verses 30 to 32 are memorable for their plaintive helplessness and sense of betrayal, the ones I just read out. It's like God is utterly stunned by the, by the reaction. So this now starts to give us a very different picture of God and any wrath of God uh, than the headmaster picture. He's not pursuing a functional relationship. He doesn't want one. Nor is his aggrievement that of a dishonoured husband whose pride has been hurt and needs avenging. We all know societies where the husband controls the woman and any infidelity is an affront to the husband's honour because she is his property. This is not the situation being invoked here. Uh, the disposition of the lover, i.e. God, is consistently portrayed as one of desire and hurt feelings, but one who cannot command the love he wants. And the love he wants is clearly a reciprocal love. In all the analogies, he's the one who's initiated the relationship and who has condescended to fall in love with one beneath his status. 
What he wants in return, all he wants in return, is a loyal relationship and a reciprocated love. He doesn't want to be one among many. He doesn't want to be ranked alongside all the other partners that his beloved has, has had dalliances with. This is the impossible situation that's uh, the canvassed in, in the opening of chapter three, a rhetorical question that says, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You've played the whore with many lovers and would you return to me? So, um, the position that God is placed in by Jeremiah's language here is weak. It's not quite unquote strong. Um, it's weak because since love can't be commanded, it's precarious. The, the one initiating the love is in some ways at the mercy of the one who is loved simply because they cannot, they can refuse, sorry, to reciprocate that love. Look, we all know this experience. Any parent enters this vulnerability by virtue of having a child. That child, although they are, they're inferior in capacities, experience, wisdom, they have the power to hurt and refuse the love of a parent. The parent can exercise power, cannot you know, restraints and constraints, but they haven't got the power to command love. So if you want to play the game of love in life uh, anywhere, you open yourself up to rejection and humiliation. If you want to play the game of control or power, you can close off any chance of rejection because power cannot be rejected by the weak. Only love can be rejected by the weaker party. And this leads, I think, to the plaintive tone that pervades chapters two and three. And the current theme is, haven't I done enough to win your love? What, what else could I have done? The tone of voice throughout the chapters is really quite remarkable because it, it just captures, it's emotionally oscillating and gyrating. Uh, the speaker is really bewildered, can't find an answer to it all, and is casting about wildly for some kind of angle, rhetorical angle that will convince the hard-hearted beloved to notice his love and to respond. But the entreaties don't work. Israel doesn't repent. But surprisingly, Really surprisingly, this does not lead to a final rejection, which an eye for justice would have demanded. What it leads to, quite stunningly, is a declaration of forgiveness and reconciliation that has no precedent or prerequisite in Israel's action. It does, however, make sense because it's the culmination of the love that's driven all the analogies that preceded it. The love will get its way. So we see this in the extraordinary um, closure of chapter three, where he says, um, return, O faithless children, I am your master, I will take you. One from a city, two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. When you've multiplied and are fruitful in those days, you shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it in the presence 
of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. That's extraordinary. That is amazing. This picture, what it suggests is God's relationship with the whole cosmos and humanity. And I exhort you to read it that way. Not just, yes, it's specifically to Israel, but it's a, uh, Israel is a synecdoche or fractal of God's entire relationship with humanity. Um, God is in the love game, not the power game. And simply for one reason, it's not that he's soft, it's because of his goals. He wants relationship based on reciprocal love and understanding. Notice the shepherds will feed you with understanding with Israel and with human beings. And this means to get that, he has to position himself as vulnerable and capable of disappointment. Um, well, that's pretty amazing, but we need to just work with that. One point I want to make is, as you can see uh, in that, uh, the verses I read out, extraordinarily, there'll be no more Ark of the Covenant. That's extraordinary. It's like the death of the Mosaic law. And instead of the Ark of the Covenant, and as in the Mosaic law being the centre of Israel, the city will be the centre of Israel, which speaks to me about a uh, amplification of God outside of ritual, outside of religion, into the whole of the cosmos, the whole of the civic society. And importantly, this city becomes a attractor for all the Gentiles. All the nations of the earth flow into it. Think back to the first talk I gave where he said of Israel, they'd be the first fruits of his inheritance. Uh, let, let's just uh, finish off now, though, by... Um, just saying, fine, what picture does this give us of God? Um, because his dynamic of weakness isn't the same of ours. Uh, what we find implied here in Jeremiah uh, stunningly counters the human expectations of power. Uh, the weakness of the cross will transform be, uh, be transformed by the strength of resurrection. And that, they are inseparable, the cross and the resurrection, as the workings of God once he enters our created order of weakness. He enters our created order of weakness in order to rule it, but not our way. He wants the rule of love, not power. So once the omnipotent and sovereign God enters the created zone, he does fulfill all hopes. And this is the universal message of the resurrection. It introduces a new kind of power to humanity and to the created cosmos. It's a power where love reigns and not force. There's been no governorship in human history that has been run by love. Love's desirable. Everyone wants it. You know, it's all right for John Lennon to sing All You Need Is Love and uh, Imagine and things like that. But that's lip service, and um, that's the best we ever get. It's never been the monopolizing logic of any regime. But the resurrection tips all this on its head, and love rules. Weakness 
at the cross, it turns out triumphs. And the vulnerable, it turns out, is given a name above all names and all dominion, authority, rules and kingships are now subject to him. Thus, Christ wins the cosmos back to the Father and love reigns. And that eventual victory, I think, is foreshadowed here in this uh, logic of love that governs all the wrath. Clearly, you can see in the picture of Jeremiah, going back to the pained question that person asked, is it is the love of God that is the only explanation for any actions that occur. It is the prime force, not the wrath. Now, the fulfilment of this at Calvary was not obviously clear to Jeremiah, who saw through a glass darkly. Nonetheless, the language of Jeremiah does suggest this kingdom of love very strongly. Um, and I think it can only be truly read for its prophetic power backwards through the illuminating light of Christ, who alone makes sense of the conundrum that love can rule. Uh, just to finish, um, let me just emphasize that Jeremiah's vision, uh, I think, does, intent, does amplify to a vision of cosmic inclusion and healing. God promises against all odds and without any caveats a coming day, as, as I read out, when he will give Israel shepherds. And we think of the good shepherd who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And this regime will eclipse the Mosaic Covenant because there won't be an ark and you won't make another one. You don't need to make another one because God will be present in the city. It's really a... Um, a for, it's very prescient of uh, the last chapters of Revelation where the light of God is in the New Jerusalem. And uh, we move from a temple to a city and a city that will attract the nations to it, um, which is a glorious vision. Well, I hope that gives you a good taste of um, the prophetic power in Jeremiah. Um, really turns the idea of the headmaster God on its head, actually completely inverts it. And that changes everything.